No one took any notice of Angua as she trotted up the gangplank. The important thing she knew was to look at home. No one bothered a large dog that looked as though it knew where it was going. People were milling about on the deck in the manner peculiar to non-sailors on board ship, not sure of what they should be doing or where they should refrain from doing it. Some of the more stoic ones had made little camps, defining with bundles and pieces of cloth tiny areas of private property. They reminded Angua of the bi-coloured drainpipes and microscopically delineated household boundaries in Money Trap Lane, showing yet another way of drawing a line in the sand. This is mine, and that is yours. Trespass on mine, and you'll get yours. There were a couple of guards standing on either side of the door to the cabins. They hadn't been told to stop dogs. Scents led down below. She could smell the other dogs and a strong odour of cloves. At the end of the narrow passage, a door was ajar. She forced it open with her nose and looked around. The dogs were lying on a rug on one side of a large cabin. Other dogs might have barked, but these just turned their beautiful heads towards her, sighted down the length of their noses, and examined her carefully. A narrow bed beyond them was half concealed by silk hangings. Seventy-one-hour Ahmed was bending over it, but he turned when she entered. He glanced towards the dogs and gave her a puzzled look. Then, to her amazement, he sat down on the deck in front of her. "'And who do you belong to?' he said in perfect Morporkian. Angua wagged her tail. There was someone in the bed. She could smell them, but they wouldn't be a problem. Jaw muscles strong enough to sever someone's neck help you to feel relaxed in most situations. Ahmed patted her on the head. Very few people have ever done that to a werewolf without having to get people to cut up their meals for them in future, but Angua had learned self-control. Then he stood up and went to the door. She heard him say something to someone outside, and then he came back into the room and smiled at her. I go, I come back. He opened a small cupboard and took out a jewelled dog collar. You shall have a collar. Oh, and here is some food, he added, as a servant brought in some bowls. Nick-nack paddywhack give a dog a bone is a rhyme I hear your ankh-more-pork children sing. But a paddywhack is a ball of gristle suitable only for animal food, and who knows what part of the animal is its nick-nack. The plate was put in front of Angua. The other dogs stirred, but Ahmed snapped a word at them and they settled back again. The food was dog food. In Ankh-Morpork terms, it meant something that you wouldn't even put in a sausage, and there are very few things that a man with a big enough mincer cannot put in a sausage. The little central human part of her was revolted, but the werewolf drooled at the sight of every glistening tube and wobbly fat bit. It was on a silver plate. She looked up. Ahmed was watching her carefully. Of course, the royal dogs were treated like kings, all those diamond collars, didn't have to mean he knew. Not hungry, he said. Your mouth says you are. Something snapped around her neck as she spun around to bite. Her teeth closed on a mouthful of greasy cloth, but that wasn't as important as the pain. His Highness has always liked fine collars on his dogs, said 71-hour Ahmed through the red mist. Rubies, emeralds and diamonds, Miss Angua. His face came down level with hers, set in silver. A crucial factor, I have always found, is not the size of the forces. It is the positioning and commitment of reserves, the bringing of power to a point. 
Vimes tried to concentrate on Tacticus, but there were two distractions. One was that the grinning face of 71-hour Ahmed looked out at him from every line. The other was his watch, which he had propped up against the disorganiser. It was powered by actual clockwork and was much more reliable, and it never needed feeding. It ticked quietly. As far as it was concerned, he could forget his appointments. He liked it. The second hand was just curving towards the top of the minute when he heard someone coming up the stairs. Come in, Captain, said Vimes. There was a snigger from the box. Carrot's face was pinker than normal. Something's happened to Angua, said Vimes. The high colour drained from Carrot's face. How did you know that? Vimes firmly closed the lid on the sniggering demon. Let's call it intuition, shall we? I'm right, am I? Yes, sir. She went aboard a Clatchian boat, and now it's sailing. She hasn't come off. What the hell did she go on board for? We were after Ahmed, and he looked as if he was taking someone with him, sir. Someone ill, sir. He's left, but the diplomats are still... Vimes stopped. There was, if you didn't know Carrot, something wrong with the situation. There were people who, when their girlfriend was spirited away on a foreign ship, would have dived into the Ark, or at least run briskly along the crust, leapt aboard and dealt out merry hell on a democratic basis. Of course, at a time like this, that would be a dumb thing to do. A sensible approach would be to let people know, but even so... But Carrot really did believe that personal wasn't the same as important. Of course, Vimes believed the same thing. You had to hope that when push came to shove, you'd act the right way, but there was something slightly creepy about someone who didn't just believe it, but lived their life by it. It was as unnerving as meeting a really poor priest. Obviously, it was a consideration that if someone had captured Angua, you knew that the rescue you were going to probably wouldn't be hers. But... The gods alone knew what would happen if he left now. The city had gone war-mad. Big things were happening. At a time like this, every cell in his body was telling him that the commander of the watch had responsibilities. He drummed his fingers on the desk. In times like this, it was vital to make the right decision. That was what he was paid for. Responsibility. He ought to stay here and do the best he could. But history was full of the bones of good men who'd followed bad orders in the hope that they could soften the blow. Oh yes, there were worse things they could do, but most of them began right where they started following bad orders. His eyes went from Carrot to the disorganiser, and then to the tottering mounds of paperwork on his desk. Blow that! He was a thief-taker! He'd always be a thief-taker! Why lie? Damned if I'll let Ahmed get back to Clatch, he said, standing up. Fast boat, was it? Yes, but it looked pretty heavy in the water. Then maybe we can catch it up before it goes very far. As he hurried forward, he had just for a second the strange sensation that he was two people, and this was because for the merest fraction of a second he was two people. They were both called Samuel Vimes. To history, choices are merely directions. The trousers of time opened up, and Vimes began to hurtle down one leg of them. And somewhere else, the Vimes who made a different choice began to drop into a different future. They both darted back to grab their disorganisers, by the most outrageous of freak chances, quite uniquely, in this split second of decision, they each got the wrong one. And sometimes the avalanche depends on one snowflake. Sometimes a pebble is allowed to find out what might have happened, if only it had bounced the other way. The wizards of Ankh Morpork had been very firm on the subject of printing. It's not happening here, they said. Supposing, they said, someone printed a book on magic and then broke up the type again and used it for a book on, say, cookery. The metal would remember. 
Spells aren't just words. They have extra dimensions of existence. We'd be up to here in talking soufflés. Besides, someone might print thousands of the damn things, many of which could well be read by unsuitable people. The Engravers Guild was also against printing. There was something pure, they said, about an engraved page of text. It was there, whole, unsullied. Their members could do very fine work at very reasonable rates. Allowing unskilled people to bash lumps of type together showed a disrespect for words, and no good would come of it. The only attempt ever to set up a printing press in Ankh-Morpork had ended in a mysterious fire and the death by suicide of the luckless printer. Everyone knew it was suicide because he'd left a note. The fact that this had been engraved on the head of a pin was considered an irrelevant detail. And the patrician was against printing because if people knew too much it would only bother them. So people relied on word of mouth, which worked very well because the mouths were so close together. A lot of them were just below the noses of the members of the Beggars' Guild, citizens generally regarded as reasonably reliable and well-informed, except in the particular case of Sidney Lopsides, who was paid two dollars a day from city funds to wear a sack over his head. It wasn't that he was spectacularly deformed as such, it was merely that anyone who saw him spent the rest of the day with an unnerving feeling that they were upside down. Some of them were highly thought of for their sports coverage. Lord Rust looked thoughtfully at Cumbling Michael, a grade two mutterer. And what happened next? Cumbling Michael scratched his wrist. He'd recently got his extra grade because he'd finally managed to catch a disfiguring but harmless skin disease. Mr Carrot was in there about two minutes, my lord. Then they all come running out, right, and, and, and they... Who were they? said Rust. He fought off an urge to scratch his own arm. There was Carrot and, and, and Vimes and, and, and a dwarf and a zombie and all of them, my lord. They ran all the way to the docks, my lord, and Vimes saw Captain Jenkins and he said... Ah, Captain Jenkins, this is your lucky day. The captain looked up from the rope he was coiling. No one likes being told it's their lucky day. That sort of thing does not bode well. When someone tells you it's your lucky day, something bad is about to happen. It is, he said. Yes, because you have an unrivalled opportunity to aid the war effort. I have? And also to demonstrate your patriotism, Carrot added. I do? We need to borrow your boat said Vimes. Bugger off. I'm choosing to believe that was a salty nautical expression meaning why certainly, said Vimes. Captain Carrot, sir, you and Detritus go and look behind that false partition in the hold, said Vimes. Right, sir, said Carrot, walking towards the ladder. There's no false partition in the hold, snapped Jenkins, and I know the law, and you can't... There was a crash of timber from below. If that wasn't a false partition, our carrot's gone and knocked a hole in the side, said Vimes calmly, watching the captain. Er, I know the law too, said Vimes. He drew his sword. Say this, he said, holding it up. This is military law, and military law is a sword, not a two-edged sword. There's only one edge, and it's pointing at you. Found anything, carrot? Carrot appeared over the edge of the hold. There was a crossbow in his hand. I do declare, said Vimes, but that looks to me like a burly and strong-in-the-arm Viper Mark III, which kills people but leaves buildings standing. There's crates and crates of stuff, said Carrot. 
There's no law, Jenkins began, but he sounded as if the bottom was dropping out of his world. You know, I think there probably is some law against selling weapons to the enemy in times of war, said Vimes. Of course, there might not be. Tell you what, he added brightly, why don't we all go along to Sartor Square? It's full of people around this time, all very keen on the war and cheering our brave lads. Why don't we go along and put it to them? You told me I ought to listen to the voice of the people. Odd thing, ain't it? You meet people one at a time, they seem decent, they got brains that work, and then they get together and you hear the voice of the people and it snarls. That's mob rule. Oh, no, surely not, said Vimes. Call it democratic justice. One man, one rock, detritus volunteered. Jenkins looked like a man afraid the world was about to drop out of his bottom. He glared at Vimes and then at Carrot and saw no help there. Of course, you'd have nothing to fear from us, said Vimes, although you might trip on your way down the stairs to the cells. There's no stairs down to your cells. Stairs can be arranged. Please, Mr Jenkins, said Carrot, the good cop. I wasn't taking the weapons to Clatch, Jenkins said slowly, as if he was reading the words very painfully off some interior script. I had, in fact, bought them to donate them to... Yes, yes, said Vimes. Our brave lads, said Jenkins. Well done, said Carrot. And you'd be happy to... Vimes prompted, and I'd be happy to lend my boat to the war effort, said Jenkins, sweating. A true patriot, said Vimes. Jenkins writhed. Who told you there was a false panel in the hold, he demanded. It was a guess, right? Right, said Vimes. Aha, I knew you were only guessing. Patriotic and clever, said Vimes. Now, how do you make this thing go fast? Lord Rust tapped his fingers on the table. What did he take the boat for? Mm, Dunno, my lord, said Cumbling Michael, scratching his head. Damn, did anyone else see them? Oh, there weren't many people around, my lord. That's a small mercy, at least. Just me and foul old Ron and the duck man and blind Hugh and Ringo Eyebrows and No Way Jose and Sidney Lopsides and that bastard Stooley and Whistling Dick and a few others, my lord. Rust sank back in his chair and put a pale hand over his face. In Arkmorpork, the night had a thousand eyes and so did the day, and it also had five hundred mouths and nine hundred and ninety-nine ears. Sidney Lopsides again. The Clatchians must know, then, he said. A detachment of Ankh-Morpork soldiery has taken ship for Clatch, an invasion force. Oh, you could hardly call it, Lieutenant Hornet began. The Clatchians will call it that. Besides, the troll Detritus is with them, said Rust. Hornet looked glum. Detritus was an invasion force all by himself. What ships have we commandeered, said Rust. There's more than twenty now, if you include the indestructible, the indolence, and the... Lieutenant Hornet looked at his list again. And the Prid of Ankh-Morpork, sir. The Prid? I'm afraid so, sir. We should be able to take more than a thousand men and two hundred horses, then. Why not let Vimes go, said Lord Salachi. Let the Clatchians deal with him and good riddance. And give them a victory over Ankh-Morpork forces? That's how they will see it, damn the man. He forces our hand. But still, perhaps it is for the best. We should embark. I'll be entirely ready, sir, 
said Lieutenant Hornet, with the special inflection that means, We are not entirely ready, sir. We had better be. Glory awaits, gentlemen. In the words of General Tacticus, let us take history by the scrotum. Of course, he was not a very honourable fighter. White sunlight etched dark shadows in Prince Kadram's palace. He too had a map of Clatch, made of tiny coloured tiles set into the floor. He sat looking at it pensively. Just one boot, he said. General Achal, his chief adviser, nodded and added, Our scryers can't get a very clear picture over that distance, but we do believe one of the men to be Vimes. You recall the name, sire? Ah, the useful Commander Vimes, the prince smiled. Indeed, and since then there has been a lot of activity all along the docks. We have to take the view that the expeditionary force is setting out. I thought we had at least a week, Ashal. It is certainly puzzling. They cannot possibly be prepared, sire. Something must have happened. Kadram sighed. Oh, well, let us follow where fate points the way. Where will they attack? Gebra, sire. I'm sure of it. Our most heavily fortified city? Surely not. Only an idiot would do that. I have studied Lord Rust in some depth, sire. Remember that he doesn't expect us to fight, so the size of our forces really doesn't worry him. The general smiled. It was a neat, thin little smile. And, of course, in attacking us, he is piling infamy upon infamy. The other coastal states will take note. A change of plan, then, said Kadram. Ankh-Morpork can wait. A wise move, sire, as always. Any news of my poor brother? Alas, no, sire. Our agents must search harder. The world is watching, Ashal. Correct, sire. Sarge? Yes, Nobby? Tell me again about our special qualities. Shut up and keep peddling, Nobby. Right, Sarge. It was quite dark in the boat. A candle swung from a bracket over Leonard of Quirm's bowed head as he sat steering with two levers. Around Nobby, pulleys rattled and little chains clicked. It was like being inside a sewing machine. A damp one, too. Condensation dropped off the ceiling in a steady stream. They had been peddling for ten minutes. Leonard had spent most of the time talking excitedly. Nobby got the impression he didn't get out much. He talked about everything. There were the tanks of air, for example... Nobby was happy to accept that you could squeeze air up really small, and that was what was in the groaning, creaking, steel-bound casks strapped to the walls. It was what happened to the air afterwards that came as a surprise. Bubbles, said Leonard. Dolphins again, you see. They don't swim through the water, they fly through a cloud of bubbles, which is much easier, of course. I add a little soap, which seems to improve matters. He thinks dolphins fly, Sarge, whispered Nobby. Just keep peddling. Sergeant Colon risked a glance behind him. Lord Vetinari was sitting on an upturned box amidst the clicking chains with several of Leonard's sketches open on his knees. Carry on, Sergeant, said the patrician. Right, sir. The boat was moving faster now they were away from the city. There was even a brackish light filtering through the little glass windows. Mr Leonard, said Nobby. Yes? Where are we going? His lordship wishes to go to Leshp. 
Yes, I thought it would be something like that, said Nobby. I thought, where don't I want to go? And the answer just popped into my head just like that. Only I don't think we'll get there, the reason being in about another five minutes my knees are going to fall off. Oh, my word, you won't have to pedal all the way, said Leonard. What do you think the big auger on the nose is for? That, said Nobby, I thought that was for drilling into the bottom of enemy ships. What? Leonard spun around in his seat, a look of horror on his face. Sink ships? Sink ships with people on them? Well, yes. Corporal Nobbs, I think you are a very misguided young man, said Leonard stiffly. Use the boat to sink ships? That would be terrible. In any case, no sailor would dream of doing such a dishonourable thing. Sorry. The auger, I would have you know, is for attaching us to passing ships in the manner of the remora, the suckerfish which attaches itself to sharks. A few turns is all that is necessary for a firm attachment. So you couldn't bore all the way through the hull, then? Only if you were a very careless and extremely thoughtless young man. The ocean waves may not be ploughable, but the crust of the river Ankh downstream from the city was known to sprout small bushes in the summertime. The milker moved slowly, leaving a furrow behind it. Can't you go faster? said Vimes. Why, certainly, said Jenkins nastily. Where would you like us to put the extra mast? The ship's just a dot, said Carrot. Why aren't we gaining on them? It's a bigger ship, so it's got what we technically call more sails said Jenkins, and there are fast hulls on those Clatchian boats, and we've got a full hold. He stopped, but it was too late. Captain Carrot, said Vimes. Sir, throw everything overboard, said Vimes. Not the crossbows, they cost more than a hundred dollars each. Jenkins stopped. Vimes's expression said very clearly that there were a whole lot of things that could be thrown off the boat, and it would be a good idea not to be among them. Go and pull some ropes, Mr Jenkins, he said. He watched the captain stamp off. A few moments later, there was a splash. Vimes looked over the side and saw a crate bob for a moment and then sink, and he felt happy. Thief-taker, Rust had called him. The man had meant it as an insult, but it'd do. Theft was the only crime, whether the loot was gold, innocence, land or life, and for the thief-taker, there was the chase. There were several more splashes. Vimes fancied the ship surged forwards. The chase. Because the chase was simpler than the capture, once you'd caught someone it got complicated, but the chase was pure and free, much better than prodding at clues and peering at notebooks. He flees, I chase. Simple. Veterinary's terrier, hmm? Bingly, 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 beep, said his pocket. Don't tell me, said Vimes. It's something like 5 p.m. at sea, yes? Er, uh, no, said the disorganiser. Says here, violent row with Lord Rust, insert name here. Aren't you supposed to tell me what I'm going to do, said Vimes, opening the box. Uh, what you should be doing, said the demon, looking very worried. What you should be doing. I don't understand it. Um, something seems to be wrong. Angua stopped trying to rub the collar off against a bulkhead. It wasn't working, and the silver pressing against her skin seemed to freeze her and burn her at the same time. Apart from that, and a silver collar on a werewolf was a fairly major that, she'd been treated well. They'd left a plate of food, a wooden plate, 
and she'd let her wolf side eat it while the human side shut its eyes and held its nose. There was a bowl of water, quite fresh by Aunt Morpork standards. She could see the bottom of the bowl, at least. It was so hard to think in wolf shape. It was like trying to unlock a door while drunk. It was possible, but you had to concentrate every step of the way. There was a sound. Her ears pricked up. Something tapped once or twice under the hull. She hoped it was a reef. That meant land, possibly. With any luck, she could swim ashore. Something clinked. She'd forgotten about the chain. It was hardly necessary. She felt as weak as a kitten. There was a rhythmic noise, like something chewing at the wood. A tiny metal point splintered through the wall just in front of her nose and rose an inch. And someone spoke. It sounded far off and distorted, and perhaps only a werewolf would have heard it, but words were happening somewhere under her paws. Can stop peddling now, Corporal Nobbs. I am knackered, Sarge. Is there anything to eat? There's some more of that garlic sausage, or there's the cheese or cold beans. We're in a tin with no air and we're supposed to eat cheese. I ain't even gonna comment on the beans. I'm very sorry, gentlemen. Things were rather rushed and I had to take food which would keep. It's just that it's getting a bit crowded, if you get my meaning. I will pay out the rope as soon as it's dark and we can surface and take on air. Just so long as we get rid of the air we've got, that's all I'm saying. Angua's brows wrinkled as she tried to make sense of this. The voices were familiar. Even muffled as they were, she recognised the tones. The vague feeling that fought its way through the mists of animal intellect was friends. The tiny little unchangeable centre of her thought, Good grief, next thing I'll be licking hands. She laid her head down near the point again. Way to do it, young man, there you go again, sink ships, I can't imagine how anyone could think of such a thing. Names. Some of those voices had names. Thinking was getting harder. That was the silver at work. But if she stopped, she might forget how to start again. She stared at the point of metal, the point of metal with sharp edges. The tiny human part of her mind raged at the wolf brain, trying to get it to understand what it needed to do. It was after midnight. The lookout man knelt on the deck in front of 71-hour Ahmed and trembled. I know what I saw, Wali, he moaned, and the others saw it too. Something rose up behind the ship and began chasing us. Uh, a monster. Ahmed looked at the captain, who shrugged. Who knows what lies on the floor of the sea, Wali? It's breath, moaned the seaman. There was a great roar of breath like the stink of a thousand privies, and then it spoke. Really, said Ahmed. This is not unusual. What did it say? I did not understand. The man's face screwed up as he tried to assemble the unfamiliar syllables. It sounded like, he swallowed and went on, Ye gods, that was better out than in, Sarge. Ahmed stared at him. And what did that mean to you, he said. I do not know, Wali. You have not spent much time in Ankh-Morpork? No, Wali. Then return to your post. The man stumbled out. We have lost speed, Wali, said the captain. Perhaps the sea monster is clutching at our keel. It pleases you to joke, Lord, but who knows what has been disturbed by the rising of the new land? I shall have to see for myself, said 71-hour Ahmed. He walked alone to the stern of the ship. Dark waters sucked and splashed and left a phosphorescent glow edging the wake. 
He watched for a long time. People bad at watching didn't last long in the desert, where a shadow in the moonlight could be just a shadow or it could be someone anxious to help you on your way to paradise. The Dregs came across many shadows of the latter persuasion. Dreg wasn't their name for themselves, although they tended to adopt it now out of pride. The word meant enemy, everyone's. And if anyone else wasn't around, then one another's. If he concentrated, he might believe that there was a darker shape about a hundred yards behind the ship, very low in the water. Waves were breaking where waves shouldn't be. It looked as though the ship was being followed by a reef. Well, well. 71-hour Ahmed was not superstitious. He was substitious, which put him in a minority among humans. He didn't believe in the things everyone believed in, but which nevertheless weren't true. He believed instead in the things that were true in which no one else believed. There are many such substitutions, ranging from it'll get better if you don't picket it, all the way up to sometimes things just happen. Currently, he was disinclined to believe in sea monsters, especially ones that spoke in the language of Ankh Morpork, but he did believe that there were a lot of things in the world that he didn't know about. In the far distance, he could see the lights of a ship. It didn't seem to be gaining on them. This was much more worrying. In the darkness, 71-hour Ahmed reached over his shoulder and grasped the handle of his sword. Above him, the mainsail creaked in the wind. Sergeant Colon knew he was facing one of the most dangerous moments in his career. There was nothing for it. He was out of options. Er, uh, if I add this A and this O and this I and this D, he said, the sweat pouring down his pink cheeks, then I can use that V to make a void. Er... Uh, and that gets me, uh, 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 what do you call these blue squares, Len? Uh, three times ye value of the letter score, said Leonard of Quirm. Well done, Sergeant, said Lord Vetinari. I do believe that puts you in the lead. Uh, I do believe it does, sir, squeaked Sergeant Colon. However, I find that you have left me the use of my U, N, and A, B, L, E the patrician went on, which incidentally lands me on this three times the whole word square, and I rather suspect wins me the game. Sergeant Colon sagged with relief. A capital game, Leonard, said Vetinari. What did you say it was called? I call it the make words with letters that have all been mixed up game, my lord. Ah, yes, obviously. Well done. Eh, and I got three points, mumbled Nobby. They was perfectly good words that you wouldn't let me have to. I'm sure the gentlemen don't want to know those words, said Colin severely. I'd have got ten points for that X. Leonard looked up. Strange, we seem to have stopped moving. He reached up and opened the hatch. Damp night air poured in, and there was the sound of voices quite close, echoing loudly as voices do when heard across water. Heathen clatchy and talk, said Colon. What are they gabbling about? What nephew of a camel cut the rigging, said Lord Vetinari, without looking up. Not just the ropes, look at the sail. Here, give me a hand. I didn't know you spoke Clatchian, my lord. Not a word, said Lord Vetinari. But you... I did not, said Vetinari calmly. Ah, right. Where are we, Leonard? 
Well, my star charts are all out of date, of course, but if you would care to wait until the sun rises, and I've invented a device for ascertaining position by reference to the sun, and devised a satisfactorily accurate watch... Where are we now, Leonard? Um, in the middle of the Circle Sea, I suspect. The middle? Pretty close, I should say. Look, if I can measure the wind speed... Then Lesp should be in this vicinity? Oh, yes, I should... Good. Unhitch us from this apparently stricken ship while we still have the cover of darkness, and in the morning I wish to see this troublesome land. In the meantime, I suggest that everyone gets some sleep. Sergeant Colon did not get a lot of sleep. This was partly because he was woken up several times by sawing and banging coming from the front of the boat, and partly because the water kept dripping on his head, but mainly because the lull in activity was causing him to consider his position. Sometimes when he woke up he saw the patrician hunched over Leonard's drawings, a gaunt silhouette in the light of the candle, reading, making notes. He was in the immediate company of a man even the Assassin's Guild was frightened of. Another man who would stay up all night in order to invent an alarm clock to wake him up in the morning, and a man who had never knowingly changed his underwear. And he was at sea. He tried to look on the bright side. What was the main reason why he hated boats? The fact that they sank, right? But this one had the sinking built in right from the start. And you didn't have to watch the waves going up and down because they were already above you. All this was logical. It just wasn't very comforting. When he awoke at one point, there were faint voices coming from the other end of the vessel. Don't quite understand, my lord. Why, then? They do what they're told. They tend to believe the last thing they heard. They're not bright enough to ask questions, and they have that certain unshakable loyalty available to those unencumbered by too much intelligence. I suppose so, my lord. Such men are valuable, believe me. Sergeant Colon turned over and tried to make himself comfortable. Glad I'm not like those poor bastards, he thought as he drifted off to sleep on the bosom of the deep. I'm a man with special qualities. Vimes shook his head. The stern light of the Clatchian ship was barely visible in the gloom. Are we gaining on them, he said. Captain Jenkins nodded. We might be. There's a lot of sea between us. And has all excess weight been thrown overboard? Yes. What do you want me to do, shave my beard off? Carrot's face appeared over the edge of the hold. All the lads are bedded down, sir. Right. I'll turn in for a few hours too, sir, if it's all right with you. Sorry, Captain. I'll get my head down, sir. But, but... Vimes waved vaguely at the darkening horizon. We're in hot pursuit of your girlfriend, among other things, he added. Yes, sir. So aren't you... you mean you can... you want to... Captain, you intend to go and have a bit of a nap? To be fresh for when we catch up with them, yes, sir. If I spend the whole night staring out there worrying, then I'll probably be a bit useless when we catch up with them, sir. It made sense. It really did make sense. Of course it made sense. Vimes could see the sense all over it. Carrot had actually sat down and thought sensibly about things. You'll be able to get to sleep, will you? he said weakly. Oh, yes, I owe it to Angua. Oh, well, good night, then. Carrot disappeared into the hold again. Good heavens, said Jenkins. Is he real? Yes, said Vimes. I mean, would you go and bang your ear if we was chasing your lady in that ship? Vimes said nothing. 
Jenkins sniggered. Mind you, if it was Lady Sybil, she'd be a bit lower on the waterline. You just watch the, the sea. Don't run into any damn whales or anything, said Vimes, and strode up to the sharp end. Carrot, he thought. If you didn't know him, you wouldn't believe it. They're slowing, Mr Vimes, Jenkins called out. What? I reckon they're slowing down, I said. Good. So what are you going to do when we catch them? Eh. Uh, Vimes hadn't given this a lot of thought, but he recalled a very bad woodcut he'd once seen in a book about pirates. We'll swing across onto them with our cutlasses in our teeth, he said. Really? said Jenkins. That's good. I haven't seen that done in years. Only ever seen it done once, in fact. Oh, yes. Yeah, this lad had seen the idea in a book and he swung across into the other ship's rigging with his cutlass clenched, as you say, between his teeth. Yes. Topless Harry, we wrote on his coffin. Oh. I don't know if you've ever seen a soft-boiled egg after you've picked up your knife and slight... All right, I see the point. What do you suggest? Grapnels. You can't beat grapnels. Catch them on the other ship and just pull them towards you. And you've got grapnels? Oh, yes. Saw some only today, in fact. Good. Then, as I recall, Jenkins went on relentlessly, it was when your Sergeant Detritus was chucking stuff over the side and he said, what shall we do with these bendy hooky things, sir? And someone, can't recall his name just at this minute, said, they are dead weight, throw them over. Why didn't you say something? Oh, well, I didn't like to, said Jenkins. You were doing so well. Don't mess me about, Captain, otherwise I'll clap you in irons. No, you ain't going to do that, and I'll tell you why. First, cos when Captain Carrot said, These chains, sir, what shall I do with them? You said, Now listen, you. And second, I don't reckon you know anything about ships. Oh, dearie me. We don't clap people in irons, we put them in chains. Do you know how to splice the main brace? Cos I don't. All that yo-ho-ho stuff's for landlubbers, or it would be if we ever used words like landlubber. Do you know the difference between port and starboard? I don't. I've never even drunk starboard. Shiver my timber. Isn't it shiver my timbers? I've been ill. Captain Jenkins spun the wheel. Also, this is a frisky wind, and me and my crew know how to pull the strings that make the big square canvas things work properly. If your men tried it, you'd soon find out how far it is to land. How far is it to land? About thirty fathoms hereabouts. The light was noticeably nearer. Bingly, 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 beep. Good grief, what now? said Vimes. Eight p.m. Uh, narrowly escape assassination by Clatchian spy. Vimes went cold. Where? he said, looking around wildly. Corner of Brewer Street and Broadway, said the little sing-song voice. But I'm not there. What's the point of having appointments, then? What's the point of my making an effort? You told me you wanted to know what you ought to... Listen, you don't have an appointment for being assassinated. The demon went silent for a moment and then said, You mean it should be on your to-do list? Its voice was trembling. You mean, like, to-do? Die? Look, it's no good taking it out on me just because you're not on the right timeline. What the hell does that mean? Aha! I knew you didn't read the manual. Chapter 7, 2C makes it very clear that sticking to one reality is vitally important, otherwise the uncertainty principle says, Forget I asked, all right. 
Vimes glared at Jenkins and at the distant ship. We'll do this my way, wherever the hell we are, he said. He strode to the hold and pulled aside a hatchway. Detritus! The Clatchian sailors struggled with the canvas while their captain screamed at them. 71-hour Ahmed didn't scream, he just stood with his sword in his hand, watching. The captain hurried over to him, trembling with fear and holding a length of rope. See, Wally, he said, someone cut it. Who would do that, said 71-hour Ahmed quietly. I do not know, but when I find him... The dogs are almost on us, said Ahmed. You and your men will work faster. Who could have done such a thing, said the captain. You were here. How could they... His gaze flickered from the cut rope to the sword. Was there something you wished to say, said Ahmed. The captain hadn't got where he was by being stupid. He spun around. Get that sail up right now, you festering sons of bitches, he screamed. Good, said 71-hour Ahmed. Detritus's crossbow was originally a three-man siege weapon, but he had removed the windlass as an unnecessary encumbrance. He cocked it by hand. Usually the mere sight of the troll pulling the string back with one finger was enough to make the strong-willed surrender. He looked doubtfully at the distant light. It's a million to one chance, he said. Got to be closer than this. Just hit it below the waterline so they can't cut the rope, said Vimes. Right, right. What's the problem, Sergeant? We're heading for Clatch, right? Well, in that direction, yes. Only, I'm going to be really stupid in Clatch because of the heat, right? I hope we're going to stop them before we get there, Detritus. I ain't keen on being stupid. I know people say, that troll Detritus, he's thicker than a... than a... Brick sandwich, said Vimes, staring at the light. Right, only I hearing it get really, really hot in the desert. The troll looked so mournful that Vimes felt moved to give him a cheerful slap on the back. Then let's stop them now, eh? he said, shaking his hand hurriedly to stop the stinging. The other ship was so close they could see the sailors working feverishly on the deck. The mainsail billowed in the lamplight. Detritus raised the bow. A ball of blue-green light glowed on the tip of the arrow. The troll stared at it. Then green fire ran down the masts, and when it hit the deck, burst into dozens of green balls that rolled, cracking and spitting over the planks. They're using magic, said Detritus. A green flame spluttered over his helmet. What is this, Jenkins, said Vimes. It ain't magic. It's worse than magic, said the captain, hurrying forward. All right, lads, get those sails down right now. You leave them where they are, shouted Vimes. You know what this is? It don't even feel warm, said Detritus, poking the flame on the crossbow. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. That's St. Ungulant's fire, that is. It means we're going to die in a dreadful storm. Vimes looked up. Clouds were racing across. No, they were pouring into the sky in great twisting billows, like ink streaming into water. Blue light flashed somewhere inside them. The ship lurched. Look, we've got to lose some sail, shouted Jenkins. That's the only way. No one touches anything, shouted Vimes. Green fire skimmed along the tops of the waves now. Detritus, arrest any man who touches anything. Right. We want to go fast, after all. Vimes said above the hissing and the distant crackle of thunder. Jenkins gawped at him as the ship lunged beneath them. You're mad. Have you any idea what happens to a ship that tries... 
you haven't got any idea, have you? This isn't normal weather. You have to ride it out careful. You can't try to run ahead of it. Something slippery landed on Detritus's head and bounced onto the deck where it tried to slither away. And now it's raining fish, Jenkins moaned. The clouds formed a yellow haze, lit almost constantly by the lightning. And it was warm. That was the strangest thing. The wind howled like a sack full of cats, and the waves were turning into walls on either side of the ship, but the air felt like an oven. Look, even the Clatchians are reducing sail, shouted Jenkins in a shower of shrimp. Good, we'll catch them up. Mad, ouch! Something hard rebounded from his hat, hit the rail and rolled to a stop by Vimes's feet. It was a brass knob. Oh, no, moaned Jenkins, putting his arms over his head. Now it's bloody bedsteads again! The captain of the Clatchian ship was not an argumentative man when he was anywhere near 71-hour Ahmed. He just looked at the straining sails and calculated his chances of paradise. Perhaps the dog who cut the sail loose did us a favour, he shouted above the roar of the wind. Ahmed said nothing. He kept looking back. The occasional burst of electric storm light showed the ship behind aflame with green light. Then he looked at the cold fire streaming behind their own masts. Can you see that light on the edge of the flames, he said. My lord? Can you, man? Uh, no. Of course you can't. But can you see where the light isn't? The captain stared at him and then looked up again in terrified obedience. And there was somewhere where the light wasn't. As the fizzing green tongues waved in the wind, they seemed to be edged with blackness, perhaps, or a moving hole in space. That's Octarine, shouted Ahmed, as another wave sloshed over the deck. Only wizards can see it. There's magic in these storms. That's why the weather is so bad. The ship screamed in every joint as it hit the waves again. We're coming right out the water, wept Jenkins. We're just going from crest to crest. Good. It won't be so bumpy, shouted Vimes. We should pick up speed again now we've got those bedsteads over the side. Does it often raid bedsteads out here? What do you think? I'm not a nautical man. No, rains of bedsteads are not an everyday occurrence, nor are coal scuttles, Jenkins added as something black crashed off a rail and over the side. We just get the normal stuff, you know, rain, snow, sleet, fish. Another squall blew across the bounding boat and the deck was suddenly covered with flashing silver. Back to fish, shouted Vimes. That's better, surely. No, it's worse. Why? Jenkins held up a tin. These are sardines. The ship thumped into another wave, groaned and took flight again. The cold green fire was everywhere. Every nail of the deck sprouted its flame. Every rope and ladder had its green outline. And the feeling crept over Vimes that it was holding the ship together. He wasn't at all sure that it was just light. It moved too purposefully. It crackled, but it didn't sting. It looked as though it was having fun. The ship landed. Water washed over Vimes. Captain Jenkins? Yes? Why are we playing with this wheel? It's not as if the rudder's in the water. They let go. The spokes blurred for a moment and then stopped as the fire wrapped itself around them. Then it rained cake. The watch had tried to make themselves comfortable in the hold, but there were difficulties. There wasn't any area of floor, which at some point in every ten seconds wasn't an area of wall. Nevertheless, someone was snoring. How can anyone sleep in this? said Red Shoe. Captain Carrot can, said Cheery. She was hacking at something with her axe. Carrot had wedged himself into a corner. Occasionally he mumbled something and shifted position. 
Like a baby. Beats me how he's managing it, said Red Shoe. Of course, any minute this thing is going to fall apart. Yeah, but that shouldn't worry you, should it? said Detritus, on account of you being dead already. So, I end up at the bottom of the sea, knee-deep in whale droppings, and it'll be a long walk home in the dark, not to mention the problems if a shark tries to eat me. I shall fear not. According to the testament of Meserek, the fisherman Nonpur spent four days in the belly of a giant fish, said Constable Bizet. The thunder seemed particularly loud in the silence. Washpot, are we talking miracles here, said Reg eventually, or just a very slow digestive process? You would be better employed considering the state of your immortal soul than making jokes, said Constable Visit severely. It's the state of my immortal body that's worrying me, said Reg. I have a leaflet here which will bring you considerable, Visit began. Washpot, is it big enough to be folded into a boat that'll save us all? Constable Visit pounced on the opening. Aha! Yes, metaphorically, it is. Hasn't this ship got a lifeboat? said Cheery hurriedly. I'm sure I saw one when we came on. Yeah, lifeboat, said Detritus. Anyone want a sardine? said Cheery. I've managed to get a tin open. Lifeboat, Detritus repeated. He sounded like someone exploring an unpleasant truth. Like a big, heavy thing which would have slowed us down. Yes, I saw it. I know I did, said Reg. Yeah, there was one, said Detritus. That was a lifeboat, was it? At the very least, we ought to get somewhere sheltered and drop the anchor. Yeah, hmm, anchor, mused Detritus. That's a big thing, kind of hooks on, right? Of course, kind of heavy thing, obviously. Right, and uh, if it was dropped a long time ago on account of being heavy, that wouldn't do us much good now. Hardly, Red Shoe glared through the hatchway. The sky was a dirty yellow blanket crisscrossed with fire. Thunder boomed continuously. I wonder how far the barometer sunk, he said. All the way, said Detritus gloomily. Trust me on this. It was in the nature of a dreg to open doors carefully. There was generally an enemy on the other side, sooner or later. He saw the collar lying on the floor right by a little fountain of water trickling from the hull and swore under his breath. Ahmet waited just a moment and then pushed the door back quickly. It rattled against the wall. I don't intend to harm you, he said to the gloom of the bilges. If that was my intention, by now you'd... She wished she'd used the wolf. There would have been no problem with the wolf. That was the problem. She'd easily win, but then she'd be nervy and frightened. A human could stay on top of that. A wolf might not. She'd do the wrong things, panicky things, animal things. She pushed him hard as she dropped down from above the door, somersaulted backwards, slammed the door and turned the key. The sword came through the planking like a hot knife through runny lard. There was a gasp beside her. She spun around and saw two men holding a net. They would have thrown it over the wolf. What they hadn't been expecting was a naked woman. The sudden appearance of a naked woman always causes a rethink of anyone's immediate plans. She kicked them both hard and ran in the opposite direction, opened the first door at random and slammed it behind her. It was the cabin with the dogs in it. They sprang to their feet, opened their mouths and slunk down again. A werewolf can have considerable power over other animals, whatever shape she's in, although it is largely the power to make them cringe and try to look inedible. She hurried past them and pulled at one of the hangings over the bunk. 
The man in the bunk opened his eyes. He was a Clatchian, but pale with weakness and pain. There were dark rings under his eyes. Ah, he said, it would appear that I have died and gone to paradise. Are you a Huri? I don't have to take that kind of language, thank you, said Angua, ripping the silk in two with a practised hand. She was aware that she had a slight advantage over male werewolves in that naked women caused fewer complaints, although the downside was that they got some pressing invitations. Some kind of covering was essential, for modesty and the prevention of inconvenient bouncing, which was why fashioning impromptu clothes out of anything to hand was a lesser-known werewolf skill. Angua stopped. Of course, to the unpractised eye, all Clatchians looked alike, but then to a werewolf, all humans looked alike. They looked appetising. She'd learned to discern. Are you Prince Kufura? I am. And you are? The door was kicked open. Angua leapt towards the window and flung aside the bar, restraining the shutters. Water funnelled into the cabin, drenching her, but she managed to scramble up and out. Just passing through, the prince murmured. Seventy-one-hour Ahmed strode to the window and looked out. Green-blue waves edged with fire fought outside as the ship heaved. No one could stay afloat in a sea like that. He turned and looked along the hull to where Angua was clinging to a trailing line. She saw him wink at her. Then he turned away, and she heard him say, She must have drowned. Back to your posts. Presently, up on the deck, a hatch closed. The sun rose in a cloudless sky. A watcher, if such had been out there, would have noticed a slight difference in the way the swells were moving on this tiny patch of sea. They might even have wondered about this piece of bent piping which turned with a faint squeaking noise. Had they been able to place an ear to it, they would have heard the following. This idea while I was dozing off. Piece of pipe, two angled mirrors, the solution to all our steering and air problems. Fascinating. A seeing thing's pipe you can breathe down. My goodness, how did you know it was called that, my lord? A lucky guess. Here, someone's redesigned my peddling seat. It's comfortable. Ah, oh, yes, Corporal. I took some measurements while you were asleep and rebuilt it for a better anatomical configuration. You took measurements? Oh, yes, I... What, of my saddlery regions? Oh, please don't be concerned. Anatomy is something of a passion with me. Is it? Is it? Well, you can stop being passionate about mine for a start. Here, I can see an island of some sort. The pipe squeaked around. Ah, leshp. And I see people. To your pedals, gentlemen. Let us explore the ocean's bottom. I expect we shall, with him steering. Shut up, Nobby. The pipe slid down into the waves. There was a little flurry of bubbles and a damp argument about whose job it should have been to put the cork in, and then the patch of sea that had been empty was somehow a little bit emptier still. There weren't any fish. At a time like this, Solid Jackson would have even been prepared to eat curious squid, but the sea was empty, and it smelled wrong. It fizzed gently. Solid could see little bubbles breaking on the surface, which burst with a smell of sulphur and rotting eggs. He guessed that the rise of the land must have stirred up a lot of mud. It was bad enough at the bottom of a pond, all those frogs and bugs and things, and this was the sea. He tried hard to reverse that train of thought, but it kept on rising from the depths like a... like a... Why were there no fish? 
Oh, there'd been the storm last night, but generally you got better fishing in these parts after a storm because it stirred up. The raft rocked. He was beginning to think it might be a good idea to go home, but that had mean leaving the land to the Clatchians, and that had happened over his dead body. The treacherous internal voice said, Funnily enough, they never found Mr. Hong's body, not most of the important bits anyway. I think, I think uh, we'll be getting back now, he said to his son. Oh, Dad, said Les, another dinner of limpets and seaweed? Nothing wrong with seaweed, said Jackson. It's full of nourishing seaweeds, got iron in it. It's good for you, iron. Why don't we boil an anchor, then? None of your lip, son. The Clatchians have got bread, said Les. They brought flour with them, and they've got firewood. This was a sore point with Jackson. Efforts to make seaweed combust had not been successful. Yeah, but you wouldn't like their bread, said Jackson. It's all flat and got no proper crust. The breeze blew the scent of baking over the water. It carried a hint of spices. They're baking bread on our property. Well, they say it's their property. Jackson grabbed the piece of broken plank he used as an oar and began to scull furiously towards the shore. The fact that this only made the raft go round in circles added to his fury. They bloody move in right next to us and all we get is the stink of foreign food. Why's your mouth watering, Dad? And how come they've got wood, may I ask? I think the current takes the driftwood to their side of the island, Dad. See, they're stealing our driftwood, our damned driftwood. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll... But I thought we agreed that the bit over there was theirs, and... Jackson had finally remembered how to propel a raft with one oar. That wasn't an agreement, he said, creating foam as the oar thrashed back and forth. That was just an... an arrangement. It's not as if they created the driftwood. It just turned up. Accident of geography. It is a natural resource, right? It don't belong to anyone. The raft hit something which made a metallic sound, but they were still a hundred yards from the rocks. Something else, long and bent at the end, rose up with a creaking noise. It twisted around until it pointed at Jackson. Excuse me, it said in a tinny yet polite voice, but this is Lesh, isn't it? Jackson made a sound in his throat. Only, the thing went on, the water's a little cloudy and I thought we might have been going the wrong way for the last twenty minutes. Leshp, squeaked Jackson in an unnaturally high-pitched voice. Ah, good, thank you so much, good day to you. The appendage sank slowly into the sea again. The last sounds from it erupting on the surface in a cloud of bubbles were, Don't forget to put the cork in, you've forgotten to put the cork in. The bubbles stopped. After a while, Les said, Dad, what was that? It wasn't anything, snapped his father. That sort of thing doesn't happen. The raft shot forward. You could have water-skied behind it. Another important thing about the boat, thought Sergeant Colon gloomily, as they slipped back into a blue twilight, was that you couldn't bail out the bilges. It was the bilges. He was peddling with his feet in water, and he was suffering simultaneously from claustrophobia and agoraphobia. He was afraid of everything in here and everything out there at the same time. Plus, there were unpleasantnesses out there moving past as the boat drifted down the wall of rock. Feelers waved. There were claws. Things scuttled into the waving weeds. Giant clams watched Sergeant Colon with their lips. The boat creaked. 
Sarge, said Nobby, as they looked out at the wonders of the deep. Yes, Nobby. You know they say every tiny part of your body is replaced every seven years. A well-known fact, said Sergeant Colon. Right, so, I've got a tattoo on my arm, right? And it done eight years ago, so how come it's still there? Giant seaweeds winnowed the gloom. Interesting point, quavered Colon. Um, I mean, OK, new tiny bits of skin float in, but that means it ought to be all new and pink by now. A fish with a nose like a saw swam past. In the middle of all his other fears, Sergeant Colon tried to think fast. What happens, he said, is that all the blue skin bits are replaced by other blue skin bits. Off of other people's tattoos. So I've got other people's tattoos now. Er, uh, yes. Amazing, because it still looks like mine. It's got the cross daggers and wum. Wum? It was going to be mum, but I passed out and Needle Ned didn't notice I was upside down. I should have thought he'd noticed that. He was pissed too. Come on, Sarge, you know it's not a proper tattoo unless no one can remember how it got there. Leonard and the patrician were staring out at the submarine landscape. What are they looking for? said Colon. Leonard keeps talking about hieroglyphs, said Nobby. What are they, Sarge? Colon hesitated, but not for long. Ah, uh, a type of mollusk, Corporal. Tch, you know everything, Sarge, said Nobby admiringly. That's what hieroglyphs are, is it? So if we go any deeper, they'll be lower-o-glyphs. There was something slightly off-putting about Nobby's grin. Sergeant Colon decided to go for broke. Don't be daft, Nobby. Lower old glyphs if you go lower. Oh, teary me. Sorry, Sarge. Everyone knows you don't get lower old glyphs in these waters. A couple of curious squid peered at them. Curious 